As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there, welcome to the Phil Hay Show. It's brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. Dan Moylan with you from The Square Ball, along with Phil Hay from The Athletic. And you can subscribe to The Athletic for all the World Cup coverage, all Phil's stuff about Leeds United at theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Pound a month for six months, theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. The show is twice a week this season. However, we are taking a break from our usual Monday-Friday routine for the World Cup. Unless something breaks, major news breaks at Leeds United, we will be stepping down after today until just before Christmas, Phil. And the last game that we are here to talk about before the World Cup break is the eventful events at Spurs at the weekend. And does it say something that you and I normally exchange a message or two after uh, Leeds United have played just to sort of get a general sense of how we both feel about it? We've said nothing about this. Is it is it an indicator that we're ready for a little break? I think it was the game we expected, wasn't it? Um, Tottenham over the 90 minutes were Tottenham as they've been advertised to us watching from afar, what you've read about them, what you've heard about them. The, the, I guess the shortcomings that they've got combined with the, the the quality in their team that is getting them out of trouble from time to time was definitely there to be seen. They, they have this extraordinary record of falling behind in games and sometimes digging points out of them, sometimes not. Um, but because of that, really struggling to find the flow and, when we were chatting pre-match about this game, I think we all felt that there might well be something in it for Leeds, precisely because of the way Tottenham are. But I think we thought that it would be quite open. Not sure it expected to be quite as open as it was. I mean, it, it pretty much raged from the first minute and, and never stopped. It kind of felt like there might have been 10, 12 goals in that game quite easily. But I, I kind of wonder whether, when he looks back at these 14 games, whether there'll be any game that, frustrates Marsh more than this one because to have led three times against Tottenham, to have had them really exactly where Leeds wanted to get them, um, to to get the crowd in the mood that they were in, I mean it was very tetchy, I thought, down at Spurs you can tell that that is a crowd who have, I think, been seeing the same thing on repeat over and over again, you know, Spurs going behind Spurs struggling to get going in the first half, having to recover from, from a deficit and all the time, not quite looking like a side who are third in the table and, and heading for Champions League football, that undercurrent of annoyance was definitely there. And I think Leeds tapped into that successfully with the way they played and, and by scoring when they did. But in the end, there was the 
there was the collapse late on the, the two goals that, that turned it in Spurs' favour. And I think a finish to the game, which left me thinking at full time about Marsh's defence and, and the defensive record as it's starting to, to develop. We've spoken all season, OK, we, we've touched on left-backs and the need for a, a reliable, dependable, you know, quality out-and-out left-back on, on that side of the defence. But we've spoken more about a number nine and the goals, you know, the, the, the taking of chances that Marsh himself has touched on quite a few times. I'm not saying at all that they don't need a nine. I still think they do, and especially because, once again, Bamford was missing at Tottenham at the weekend. But you do have Rodrigo in the goals now. He's got five from four. You've got Somerville in the goals as well, four from four. And actually, it was hard not to feel on Saturday that the thing that has really stopped functioning for Leeds is the defence. You know, I, I was looking back to last season because we all have it in our heads that Leeds were terrible defensively last season. And it was, in the end, one of the things that did for Bielsa, the, the number of concessions. But it was 20 goals from 14 games last season. It's 26 from 14 this season. And that, I think, is is the big problem in front of Marsh as we head into the World Cup break. That is what one of the things that is going to have to change and, and have to, to, to be addressed. And they've kind of shifted from this period at the start of the season where they were kind of conceding one goal a game and, and looking pretty stable to this stage where it looks quite the opposite. What do you think's happened there then? Is this as a result of Leeds United becoming more attacking? Is it to do with the opponents that we've faced? What, what do you think has, has changed between the start of the season and now? I think there are a few factors, but one that sticks with me is the the thing that we were focusing on, or a few of us were in pre-season, which is the way in which this system invites problems out wide uh, when teams attack and, and teams go forward. That space is, is kind of always there. And, you know, we, we were chatting to Marsh afterwards about the, the tactical structure of the team and whether or not, you know, there are things that you can change in order to stop that space opening up and, and in order to stop the chances coming as regularly as they are. And he made the point, and he, he wasn't wrong, that there were you know structural switches in the second half. It was kind of 4-3-3 three, three, um, once Nonto came off. It was three at the back or five at the back once the change was made just before the, the game went to 3-0 to with, with Luke Ayling coming on. But none of it seems to change the fact that Leeds are permanently vulnerable in those wide areas. And... It was strange. I mean, Kulazewski ran all day and, and in the end was massively influential and his, his quality told. But Leeds were trying to double up on him towards the end of the game. That was one of the things that brought Tyler Adams' first book in, um, a challenge on, on Kulazewski. And in trying to double up on him, it almost seemed to make things worse. And as you know, time ticked on and, and we got closer and closer to the final whistle, the space that Kulazewski was, was finding out wide, going through that tackle from Cooper, running away from Cooper to, to get him behind him to, um, the, the huge gap was there that was there for him to, to set up the fourth goal. It was a problem um, and it was a, a definite weakness. And I think you can certainly look at individual personnel and ask if Leeds could be better in certain positions, but I still feel that that tactically there are changes that could make them stronger um, in the areas where they're evidently weak. In saying that, I can't pretend that they didn't play well in patches that taught them. They really did. Some of the attacking play was excellent. Um, I thought the first goal was from Somerville was really well crafted by Aronson and, and well finished by Somerville. Rodrigo's finish for the third um, was absolutely fantastic. I mean, one of those shots where you know that if you hit it hard from that angle, there's a good chance of you getting it horribly wrong. But you know that if you don't hit it hard from that angle, you've got very little chance of beating a keeper as good as Loris. So, you know, that was 
perfect, perfect strike. And and I thought he was really instinctive for the second goal as well. And it was very hard not to come away from the game thinking that Leeds should absolutely have had something from it. And that in a lot of ways, they'd thrown a result away. Yeah, there's a real duality to Leeds at the minute, isn't there? They're doing some excellent stuff, but then on the flip side, they're doing some really, really terrible stuff as well. And uh, I guess, is that what's at the root of your doubts about Marsh's long-term prospects in the job, the deficiencies that we keep seeing coming up, coming up over and over again? I was saying towards the end of the piece that I've written this morning, the post-Tottenham piece, that it, it just won't quite settle for him. You, you're out of form and then suddenly, you, and, you, and you're under massive pressure under the after the Fulham game, and then you come up with a huge win at Anfield and, and you dig out another result against Bournemouth. Um, but then what happens at Spurs happens and, and some of the old questions come up. Earlier in the season, you're talking about missing chances, not scoring goals, about that being the, the key to everything. And then, as I say, you have Rodrigo on five goals in four games. You have Somerville who's scoring a, a goal a game at the moment. And as I say, I don't think that changes the fact that Leeds still need a nine and, and still need more more in the way of numbers and choice up there. But there is a bit of light on that front. You know, they, they are actually starting to score and, and they're scoring at a rate that other clubs around them would be really happy with. You know, they, they're not desperately, desperately short of goals. But as that kicks in, the defence stops functioning um, in the way that it was um, earlier on in the season in the way that you need it to, to be. And it just becomes three goals against Fulham, three goals against Bournemouth, four goals conceded against Tottenham. And as I say, I think I I always felt with Liam Cooper that it wasn't going to help him at all this season, that he missed the summer. I think if there was one player who didn't want that to happen, he would have been it. The same with somebody like Furpo as well. He would have wanted the flow of pre-season training and pre-season games. And and it makes it quite difficult to to find your form when you don't have that. I think there's the option, of course, of of moving strike um, inside. But in order to do that, you need somebody reliable that you can have at left back where Stroke has been pretty good you know there, there are going to be days where it, it's not easy for him to keep things tight and I think there are going to be certain players like Kulazewski who are going to going to cause problems regardless but I still feel that the, there is a, a structural aspect to this and it's not as if back in the summer when you know the games were benign and there was nothing riding on them and it was purely pre-season friendlies it wasn't if at that point we weren't talking about the fact that Leeds seem to be vulnerable and, and exposed, particularly to counter-attacks um, in, in the wide areas whenever the opposition came forward. There's a lot to like about this team, though, isn't there? As you were saying there on the on the plus side, there's a, there's a huge resilience being shown in recent weeks, an ability to dig in and, and dig results out when you need. And also to compete. I mean, that was the thing about the, the Tottenham game, was they were right in it. And I don't think... The Tottenham probably feel like they did enough to, to win that in the end. But there were points of that game where it definitely seemed to be going against them. I think it, it's no bad thing at all that Rodrigo is scoring as he is. And I think like, over the course of this season, he's had penalties. He's had things like the tapping um, at Anfield and so on, the, the header from a few inches out against Southampton. But on, on Saturday... Two of those fin- the two, his two finishes, and particularly the second of them, the, the shot across Lloris, were absolutely excellent. And and what you look for from a thirty million pound or twenty seven million pound um, number nine, you know, from from a centre forward like him, that's kind of what you expect. Some of them is quite interesting actually because Marsh said, and I, I totally understood why he said this, and it was hard to disagree at the time. He said to us after some of those goal at Anfield, which was two and two for him, he's not going to score every game. You know, he isn't. A player who's who's likely to do that for us, but but suddenly he is, and 
You know, I was writing after the Anfield game about the fact that Somerville has the number 10 shirt and how that all came about, because it's been commented on quite a lot. You know, the, the, the fact that it's a very iconic number, and I know squad numbers these days don't mean the same as they used to, and players have all sorts of weird and wonderful choices. But the fact that he took it, the fact that he asked other players, particularly Cooper at Leeds, if they were okay with him taking it, you know, if it was a mistake or if they would object or if they thought it was too soon for him, and they all said, no, you'll go for it. It was quite a big deal, I think, and said a lot about his confidence. And this spell, I would say, has really, really settled him in now as a first-team player. Um, I think you've gone from wondering whether, you know, the, the tapping against Fulham, the finish against Liverpool, were they just kind of little flashes in the pan for a player who who needs to develop far more before that comes regularly, to suddenly starting to see him you know, posing a threat every time he plays. Um, he was dangerous against Tottenham. And I did think some of the attacking play was really good. I thought it was really clever. It was really measured. It just wasn't, the performance just wasn't complete. And as I say, I sort of wonder whether there will be another game so far this season that's frustrated Marsh more because it really did get away from them when it shouldn't have done. Somerville's feet for the first one. Excellent, wasn't it? He's showing some really, really yeah, deft, but, deft touches in attacking areas. Yeah, no, absolutely. But also Aronson's, if you if you look um, the the ball that he plays through, it's not an easy pass that. Um, and, you know, I think, in, in spells, Marsh is getting exactly what he wants from a player like Adamson in, in the way that he is from somebody like Tyler Adams. Um, the red card for Adams at the end was was <laughs> unfortunate. I think it was avoidable, to be honest. And, you know, it will it will count against Leeds because that will be him suspended for Manchester City on the other side of the of the World Cup break. That decision I thought was fair enough. I didn't think there was any argument um, with that. The the VAR decision for Tottenham's first goal is, I I think, of all the discussions we've had about VAR, and we do seem to speak about it more than we should or or more than is healthy, that's got to be one of the worst, isn't it? I I mean, Marsh just seemed completely nonplussed afterwards. He said that the fourth official had said to him, that looked like a foul to me, so it'll probably get checked. And then it, then it, did, or if it did get checked, there was nothing done, and and the referee didn't come over to the screen, and there was no reconsideration given to it. Every time I watched it, it looked like more and more, quite clearly, a defender not getting the ball and absolutely clattering melee into the back of the net, leaving Kane with a, a kind of free and an easy finish. Very, very strange. I, I don't get that at all. I mean, we said over on our match ball post match coverage. Like it was, it was so obvious that I couldn't even get mad yeah. mad about it. It was just, it was just stupid almost. But you can't have that, you know. You, you can't. It cannot be a, a system that has flaws like that. I I get that you can have marginal decisions about offside, or there are some some incidents incidents that require interpretation, and a hundred p- different people will see it in a hundred different ways. I mean, take for example Rodrigo's second goal, Leeds third goal. Spurs were claiming that there was a foul further up the pitch before that. And I think it was a reasonable argument that there might have been. And it was in, in that respect, it's quite hard to see the difference between that incident and the the goal that Phil Foden had disallowed by VAR for Manchester City away at Anfield. I think at Anfield, the foul was far more obvious and, and far more blatant. But, you know, it, it, a foul is a foul, really. And I, I think if if there'd been an argument over that one to say that should have been pulled back, then, then perhaps it should have been. Nowhere near as clear-cut as the, the Melier decision, which, as I say, to my mind, that the first thing I tweeted was that this will surely get VAR because I don't really see how that could stand. And then you watch the replay of Richarlison pushing Longley um, into Melier and you think, well, 
that speaks for itself and, and that will get dealt with. And I am absolutely at a loss to understand how that was um how that was allowed. And and, and as I say, Marsh afterwards saying that the fourth official had said to him, oh, I think that'll probably get checked because it looked like a foul to me. Just baffling. It goes back to the idea of it's ultimately human error, isn't it? And you've just transferred the responsibility to someone at Stockley Park who's not accountable, certainly not to the crowd inside the stadium. It's it hasn't solved a problem has it it's just made it a different one but there's no that that doesn't provide an excuse the referees had that excuse because referees used to get one look at an incident and they could miss things or they could be unsighted they could have people obstructing their vision in, in the heat of the moment they could take a view on an incident that they would go home look at again and think to themselves i got that wrong or, or i could have you know I could, I could have judged that differently the difference at Stockley Park is that you're sitting with the replays. That's the point. You know, you have the replays there so you can watch what's happened. And I don't think there is an excuse for human error um, in those circumstances because why would you look at that and not think it's a foul? In hindsight and with the benefit of a replay, what what about that is legitimate and allowed to, to play on? It doesn't make any sense. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We're not quite halfway through the season, but we have this, uh, well, this unnatural, this uh, this unexpected, this um, unprecedented break for the World Cup. Phil, where do you think Leeds United are, if we want to call this like a half-term assessment? And there are some uh, half-term assessments on the, the Athletic website, aren't there, uh, for, for teams across the land? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll fill people in, first of all, on what will happen for Leeds now. Clearly, they have three players heading to the World Cup, Aronson, Adams and Christensen. If there are any other additions in the meantime, that will come down to injuries for, for national teams. So people who are on the fringes, Rodrigo, Llorente, Clique, Melier, I, I suspect will be sitting relatively close to their phones just in on the off chance that, that somebody does call and say, listen, you, you needed in Qatar. The rest of the players um, will have a week off now. Uh, you might have seen on Insta, Sean McGuck flying to Dubai this morning, as you do. When they come back next week, they will all remain uh, individually in their, their own places at home and, and everything else, but they will have individual fitness programmes that they'll work on through the week. And then they report back for um, training en masse on November the 28th. And after that, likelihood is we'll have three friendlies. There's one that's been announced against Sociedad at Ellen Road on December the 16th. We're expecting Leeds to play in Spain and to do a little bit of training out there as well. And I think there will be another behind closed doors match, um, which may or may not be publicised as, as time goes on. But that will be um, the build-up, I think, to, um, to them returning against Manchester City. Where they are at the moment, we, we were asked to do that thing of grading them from A to E this season and I I gave them a C but said very much at the lower end of C potentially straying into D 
I think it's been a difficult season. I think it has been really difficult. There was promise at the beginning of it. I try to remind myself that regularly. You know, the, the win over Wolves and then very good performance for an hour against Southampton, annihilating Chelsea in the way that they did. Although as time's going on, I think it's quite clear that Chelsea aren't one of the better sides in the division this season. They're having, having a few problems. But that was still a, a terrific win. And there have been, you know, other good performances. Arsenal in particular, I thought without it being complete at Spurs and, and without it being free of the, the failings that ultimately cost them, I thought Leeds played well in patches down there. I thought they attacked well. I thought they were they were inventive. Um parts of parts of it were good. But parts of it haven't been good. And and I think one of the things that has come up this season, certainly in my mind, but I think in the mind of, of a lot of people, is whether or not tactically this is going to work longer term and whether it's going to click in a way that makes Leeds a settled side. I mean, that is the thing that, that is really lacking. It's it's not that they haven't picked up points here and there. It's not that they haven't had the odd win, but it constantly feels on edge. You know, it's late fightbacks against Bournemouth. It's late winners at, at Liverpool. It's the volatility after the Leicester defeat. It's that performance against Fulham on a day where you really felt like they needed to win. It was Tottenham where you lead three times and you lose 4-3. It's tense. It's tense. And I think you've seen in March latterly as well, you know, more and more of the pressure on him. Um, he, he can certainly feel that. He, it was quite telling, I thought, after the Bournemouth game, he was asked, you know, have you enjoyed the last two games, Liverpool and Bournemouth? And he said, no, you know, no, I, I haven't. You know, it's hard to enjoy it in these circumstances because it isn't wildly upbeat um, and it hasn't gone as he would have liked it to have gone. I don't doubt at all that back in February when he took the job in his head, he would have thought to himself, stay up, make sure we don't get relegated. That's part one. Um, of the of the process here, and part two would be to feel at this stage, I think you know, fourteen games into the season, that you were on a bit of a roll, that you were in a bit of a pattern, um, that things had settled down and the team was coming together. And I, I do feel like it's difficult to say that that's the case. I said over on our show, I think it was that uh, what we expected post Bielsa was perhaps a, a narrowing of the parameters of maybe we won't be quite as good, um, maybe we wouldn't be quite as bad as well but it feels like it's gone the other way to a certain extent. Like the highs have been probably even higher. I mean, I know we had moments such as the, the Man City result under Bielsa, but I'm talking about, you know, the games against the the bigger teams this season. We've gone toe-to-toe with them. But then, you know, the floor seems to have dropped out of it as well. Like when we look at the, the Leicester away performance, which was pitiful, wasn't it? Is that a fair assessment? Is that why people are so confused? Because it's got broader rather than narrower. Uh, we, we were supposed to have a little bit more certainty perhaps after Bielsa, but it, it seems to have gone the other uh, way. Pragmatism, I think, was the word that was used quite a bit. You know, more more pragmatic than Bielsa, which implied that there would be more flexibility, um, there would be kind of more, more of a willingness to change if if change was needed. And certainly the, the impression given, you know, what was said on the tin at the outset was that defensively they would be tighter. You know, they, they would not be as vulnerable defensively. Um, as as they were under Bielsa. I think it's probably fair to say that they are not yet as vulnerable as they were latterly. Um, and, you know, the very last stages of Bielsa where, you know, it was 6-0 at Liverpool, it was 7-0 at City, it was 4-0 against Tottenham and, and everything else. But as I say, if you do a direct comparison between last season and this, Leeds have conceded six more goals um, at, at this stage of the season after 14 games than they had under Bielsa. And I think more to the point, they are very, very close to a concession rate of two a game, which is far too many. Um, and Marsh will know himself that that it's too many. And he, he is going to have said that after the game at the weekend. So, yeah, I think 
I think that probably is the case that a lot of the football isn't as um, I guess as explosive as it was under Bielsa at his his absolute best. Some of it's good. I mean, let's not pretend that there haven't been games where Leeds have played really well and where it's been extremely engaging. You know, Arsenal was the sort of match that you sat through thinking, this is, you know, fantastic to watch this, it, it, with it minus the goals, you know, the, in the absence of Leeds scoring, not again, not perfection, but, you know, great game um, and, and a really, really good spectacle. But the, behind that, there isn't the reliability that I think everybody expected there would be. Um, and it does leave Marsh in a difficult position. Just double-checking, have you got workmen in there? I certainly have, yeah. <laughs> that yeah, lot's been done again. To, somebody's coming to lay, um, lay a new floor in today and with perfect timing, the hammers are out. Well, we'll try and get through this as quick as we can and let you get back to your, to your renovations. But I was going to say, <laughs> where, where are we in terms of goals scored um, versus last season, do you know? If we're, we've conceded more, have we scored more? Well, see, that's quite notable in itself too because actually they're a long way further forward this season than they were last season. It was 13 goals from 14 games uh, under... Bielsa, it's 22 from 14 um, under Marsh. But interestingly, they've both wound up um, on 15 points at this stage. It leads of a minus goal difference of four at the moment as opposed to seven last season. So this is what, what I was saying. I, I don't think, I think Leeds would be making a mistake that they've made previously to suddenly look at Rodrigo in the goals, Somerville in the goals and say, you know, we don't need another forward. And I think more than anything, this goes back to Bamford. What we said on Friday's podcast, you know, the, the fact that there comes a stage at which sitting saying when Banff comes good is no longer a kind of a safe or, or sensible strategy. It's not to say that he won't. And you might find that, you know, Bamford from that purple patch 2021 does reappear. But I think to assume that that's going to happen would, would be asking asking for trouble. Um, but they are scoring. You know, that that was the thing that Marsh was saying after every press conference earlier in the season. Goal, we need goals. You know, we need more goals. You need to be taking more chances. They are taking more chances. But what's happened um, in the meantime and, and in tandem with that is that goals are flying in at the other end and, and far more than than you can afford to, to allow. Regards to Bamford, there's almost an argument for saying take the pressure off him as well and just allow him to come back in his own time and find his fitness, find his touch, rather than him coming back in and everything being on his shoulders, saying we need Bamford to be able to do the running or rescue the season. I mean, thankfully, Rodrigo seems to have stepped up in recent weeks, but we could do with him continuing that across the course of the season, given that we're not sure about Bamford just yet. I'm not actually sure that Bamford wants the pressure taken off him. The, the, the impression I've had recently is that he would like to have played more when he's been fit. You know, he would like to have started more games than he has. He'd like to be more involved. The, the issue is that every time there's that feeling of him coming back or that sight of him coming back, there is a problem. You know, the, this latest one, he wasn't fit for Tottenham having missed the Wolves game and, and also the Bournemouth game because of an, an injury picked up taking a penalty in training. I, I do really sympathise with him. It does seem to be and has been one thing after another for him for such a, a long time. And, and it does feel like an age since you saw Bamford score. It feels like an age since you saw him regularly leading the line and, and completing 90 minutes. It, it's such a such a long time now. I just think you have to start mitigating against that. You know, there the does come a point, I think, where common sense tells you that you, you need deeper resources than you have. Well, unless something does happen in the coming weeks uh, at Leeds United, in a major sense, we'll be breaking off now until uh, just before Christmas and the reopening of the window. Uh, what do you think Leeds United need to do from uh, maybe from a tactical point of view, transfers point of view, as we head towards January? Personally, I feel that 
we're still where we were before. I, I think a, a centre forward and a left back, and if you get a left back who is capable and you know good enough to play there and play well there for a streak of games, you know, 15, 20 games, then you you're suddenly in a position where you have options to to rearrange your defence. You know, as I say, if you wanted to try strike and on the left side of the two centre backs, then there he is, and you can do that without compromising yourself further out wide. I did ask Marsh about this, and again, he said, look, I did change things tactically in the second half, but I guess structurally, he might have to think about whether there are different, whether he can tweak this system to make sure that Leeds aren't quite as vulnerable um, out wide as they have been. It seems to me that more clubs are looking at those gaps and, and looking for those gaps and, and trying to, to exploit them. In terms of midfield options, I think good players there. Good, you know, I've been really impressed with Tyler Adams. I think he's been a, a good sign, and I think we're going to get much more from Aronson as time goes on. But I really would, I think, supplement the the options at nine, supplement the options at centre forward. So to my mind, it feels like left back, centre forward, the things we were talking about in the summer are still pretty much the things that we should be talking about leading up to January. All right, now let's dig a bit deeper on that thought then quickly, Phil. And and what sort of a number nine do you think we need and, and where do we get them from at this stage of the season? It's definitely the the difficulty um, is finding exactly what you want. Although it's not to say that there aren't number nines out there that, that, you can, that you can work with. I think as a first port of call, and similar to, to what Bamford is without necessarily being an identical player to him, I think you want a player who sees himself as a nine. So Leeds recently have thought a lot, uh, and they did, well, Bielsa was head coach, and they have with Marsh as well, have thought a lot about signing players, particularly in attacking areas who are versatile. So to a large degree, players who can play in pretty much any position, you know, across the, the front four, they can play it wide on the right or the left, you know, albeit quite narrow in this system, they can play centrally as a, a bit of a 10, or they can play up front. I think they have enough um, in the way of options in that line of three. You know, I, I think they, they do, particularly when Sinistera's fit, and he will he should be back on the other side of the World Cup break, although exactly when is, is difficult to say. But it's not as if they don't have choice and they don't have variation there. There, there are issues with form, I think, particularly with somebody like Jack Harrison at the moment. But, you know, long story short, they, they have players to choose from. I think up front, they, they are still not quite certain what they're doing when it isn't Rodrigo or it isn't Bamford. You know, the decision about do they go with Gilhart? Would they give Nonto a run up there? You know, you've, you've seen Matteo Joseph come on at the weekend. Sonny Perkins has been in the background. But these are younger players, you know, very raw under-21s who haven't really been tested properly at, at Premier League level. I think you need somebody who thinks of themselves as a central player, central forward, goal scorer, wants to play as a nine. Okay, you have to be more versatile than just, you know, poacher in the box, just playing through the middle. You have to be willing to run. You have to be willing to drift. You you have to to link up. But I think the one thing they, they really want to avoid is ending up signing somebody who essentially plays in a position which is already covered. I think they need to go for a nine. With a quick eye on the uh, on the World Cup, then Phil, uh, looking a looking forward to it, and b does the lack of call ups from a Leeds perspective actually benefit us if if not the players? I think Marshall probably feel like it benefits him in as much as it gives him most of his squad to work with through this period. When they report back on November the twenty eighth, and interestingly, I mean Melly should have been in the under twenty one squad, but from what I gather, 
Leeds didn't want him to go because they, they wanted him to get a rest. And these weren't games in which it was essential for players to go or, or where call-ups were, were mandatory. Um, he isn't in the World Cup squad, but I think that's one example of them just trying to give you know certain players who've been very heavily involved a, a bit of a breather and, and a bit of breathing space in this period. But when they come back on the 28th, he will have virtually everybody there. OK, he will be missing three core parts of his lineup in Aronson, Adams and Christensen. But... To, you know, it's not as if the, the squad is going to be devoid of, of 10 first-team players. It, it isn't like that unless anybody is called up in the meantime. So to a degree, yes, I, I think it probably helps him. I think the players who haven't been called up will be immensely disappointed. And there is a big difference between, you know, as as with Bamford towards the end of the 2021 season, when I know um, before Leeds went down to Fulham and he scored um, scored in that game. Uh, I know he was massively disappointed not to be called up for the, the friend the, for the internationals that were following, and the call up did come. But that's one of those circumstances where you're talking about either qualifiers or friendlies, and and there are always more further down the line. The World Cup is is very different, and I think to take somebody like Matthias Cleek, this is the last chance for him. It seems highly unlikely that you know he's, he, he's in his early thirties now another four years down the line, highly unlikely that he's going to get the nod for that. And the same might well be true of Rodrigo and Llorente and others. So there will be kind of lingering disappointment there, without a doubt. It's a big thing to miss out on. And are you looking forward to the World Cup? You didn't answer that part. Do you know what? I I, I really am. I mean, I, I, I feel as kind of uninspired by this tournament as any international tournament I've ever seen. But I think that's in no small part because of the timing of it and also because of the the... the sort of constant political discussion around it, which I think is totally valid and I think has to be had. Um, but you would like to think, and you know, FIFA don't tend to operate like this, but you would like to think there'd be a lesson for them in this, you know, about what the tournament should be, what the narrative of it should be and how you how you make sure that that happens. But it, it will be good. Um, it will be different. It will be really interesting. Should I jinx England at this point, do you think? I mean, I don't think it really matters, does it? <laughs> I think they might do better than people think you know I think mm. they might well we'll, we'll see yeah we will see uh, we will be back after the World Cup break then in five weeks time ahead of Christmas uh, in the meantime enjoy the break if you're uh, if you're actually managing to have one Phil any any big plans flying out to Qatar no no, no I, I won't be going we've got plenty of people going from the Athletic but um, but I'm I'm not one of them there'll still be um, Leeds coverage to read there'll still be things going on it's a club that um, that never it never sleeps ever... <laughs> <laughs> never, never, ever sleeps. I'm currently in the process of writing about um, Bournemouth and Bielsa. Um, oh, no. Because that, that story was of interest last week and, and it was blowing up towards the back end of the week. Um, so there's always something. Yes, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to sign up and read Phil's stuff. Phil, if we don't um, speak before then, if nothing else massive happens at Leeds, we'll, uh, we'll speak then. Thank you very much. The Phil Hay Show. 